Welcome to Chicago Tabernacle, a place of becoming. Wherever you find yourself, we pray that you would be encouraged today by God's Word. Aren't you glad to have your pastors back? If you're watching online, I know you're disappointed. We haven't heard him in three and a half months, and now you have a guest speaker. I feel like a lion in a den of Daniels. <laughs> but thanks for this honor and privilege to be here. 20 years, praise God. And the miracles that God performed along the way to get you to where you are now. And the best is yet to come. And we're going to celebrate the past, but embrace the future. In fact, don't ever let your memories Get bigger than your dreams. But that doesn't mean you can't enjoy what God's done. I tell you, I, I really believe that a God-sized vision rarely can be accomplished in one generation. And so I was sitting here today thinking how blessed we are to have the vision from Brooklyn Tab come to Chicago Tab. Think about it. Pastor Simbola, God bless you. I know you don't want us to talk about you being here, but I believe that flattery is satanic, but honor is biblical. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 5 says that the elders who serve among you are worthy of double honor, especially those that give the word and doctrine. Probably nobody on planet Earth has inspired more people to prayer than Pastor Simbolo. And probably nobody on Earth has had more influence in the music world and the worship world than Carol Simbolo. So the God-sized vision goes to the next generation. And then today, you hear the next generation, three generations. Hallelujah. I believe when you put all of that together, they're giving the devil a nervous breakdown. <laughs> Thank you for allowing me to come. I know I'm kind of the buffer between what was and what's to come. I'm kind of the voice crying in the wilderness. <laughs> but... <laughs> I must confess to you that, uh, full disclosure, my topic this morning is kind of inspired out of a personal journey. My wife, Johanna, starting on December the 12th, in 30 days lost two members of her family. A 68-year-old brother that we had no idea he would experience what he experienced with a heart attack and passed away unexpectedly. 30 days later, her niece, 27 years old, had fought a form of cancer that young people just aren't supposed to get. A tremendous worship leader, her father, a pastor of a great church. So in 30 days, we lost two people out of our immediate circle of love transporting them to another place. And so today, 
I have to confess that a lot of what I'm going to say is helpful to our family and to me. And I just want you to know that when trouble comes and you face stuff, you know what I'm talking about. I mean stuff that just, you know, I know this is not real theological, or, but Satan is a hope sucker. <laughs> he just tries to suck the hope right out of you. That confident expectation of something good that's going to happen. If he can get you to start being hopeless, you can't anticipate the good of the next 20 years, even while you're rejoicing on the last 20 years. And so Colossians 3 says, let this word dwell in you. And if you interpret that, I interpret it to mean if the word is not going to bless the preacher, how could it ever bless the saints? So today I start by saying, Believing in the sweet by and by helps us survive the pain of the nasty now and now. The fastest growing church in the world has taken root in one of the most unexpected and radicalized nations on earth, according to a documentary I saw called Sheep Among Wolves. That documentary is talking about the revival that's been taking place and continues to take place in Iran. The Iranian, and let me quote from the, so I get it exactly verbatim. The Iranian awakening is a rapidly reproducing discipleship movement that owns no property or buildings, has no central leadership, and is predominantly led by women. Thank you for that. <laughs> they know if they're caught, they can expect to be beaten, raped, put in prison, and many of them will be killed. How do they react? How do they handle such pressure? How do they respond? Here's what one of them said. When we walk outside, we really don't care if we get arrested. We're not upset if we get arrested. What is 50 years in prison compared to an eternity with Jesus? I mean, I could just say Selah and go sit down. Dwelling on the eternal can help us deal with all the problems of the temporal, the questions, the whys. So, I don't have to be the reporter. You know we've come through a pretty rough couple of years. We don't really understand it all. And they tell us that this misery is not over yet. But not just a pandemic have we endured. Think about all the other stuff that's happening. I mean, you got this uh, socioeconomic upheaval, skyrocketing inflation, and China and Russia are dominating for world domination. I mean, they're trying to 
well, we don't know what all is going to go on there. We're praying, but we don't have answers. Things are happening. Revival is occurring in Africa, and yet people are being martyred. I have a friend who lost. He was a general superintendent in Burkina Faso. They dragged pastors from their pulpits and slaughtered them in the courtyard in front of the whole congregation. It's not understandable. How do, you, how do you reconcile this and rationalize it? How, how do you live through this? And then you talk about these national and international events, but it's more personal than that for some. They're at the breaking point. Maybe people in this room are watching online right now. You're drowning in despair and defeat, haunted by emotional strain. A friend of mine recently, I I heard him say, this is a man I have respected and know who's preached the gospel for over 56 years. He said, I don't understand what's happening to me. I wake up every morning and I weep and I can't stop myself. This depression is not something that I've anticipated. I don't understand it. You say, well, I don't know him. What's wrong with him? I mean... (laughs) How could you climb inside his mind? I don't know. Some are hounded by physical pain. Others are harassed by financial pressure. Disharmony domestically. See, our adversary would like to keep us fixated on our problems and not on our promises. He would like for us to live shallow, earthbound lives, preoccupied with the passing and not the permanent, trapped by things temporal and trivial. He would like for us to be so transfixed by earth's pain, the nasty now and now, that we would fail to be transformed by heaven's pleasure, the sweet by and by. Satan wants us to forget one of Jesus' most compelling promises When he said in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, no matter what you've been going through, no matter what kind of pain you've been feeling, no matter what kind of devastation you have had in your life, no matter how deep that valley has been, you got to know one time, one way, one day, there's going to be, I know God can bless us now and he can help us now. And he, but we know that this world is not our home. He's preparing a place for us. And if I go away, he said, I'll come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Hallelujah. Friends of mine, uh, Lavoie and Cleon Dewey, wrote a song that I really love and I've sung and many maybe have heard others sing it. It's a song entitled Heaven Gets Sounding Sweeter Every Day. And that's kind of the title of my message today. For I believe that while we know we have a job to do and we've been commissioned to have a great commission and a great commandment and all of that we're going to even talk about before I'm done today. But I just want you to know there is a place that, that, that is our ultimate where we're headed. And, and heaven is a real place. In John chapter 4, I mean, Revelation chapter 4, John said, I looked and behold, a door was opened up in heaven and I heard a voice speaking to me like a trumpet. Come up here invitation. And I will show you what must take place after this. So we need to remind ourselves that heaven's not just a state of mind. It's not a figment of somebody's imagination. It's not a philosophical concept. It's not just a religious abstract. It's not just somebody's sentimental dream. Heaven is a real place. 
Jesus further elucidated on that subject when he continues in John chapter 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Acts chapter 1 verse 10. When Jesus was being ascended into heaven after the resurrection, two men in white apparel stood by and said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you shall so come in like manner. For the Lord himself, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Hallelujah. Verse 18 follows that up and says, comfort one another with these words. When you start thinking about heaven, it can bring you comfort when you're in pain. 1,865 times in the Old Testament and 316 times in the New Testament, the concept of heaven is mentioned. I don't know how old you are in the faith. I've been around quite a while. I remember we used to sing a lot about heaven. And we had sermons preached about heaven. Back when I was growing up, it seemed like that's all they ever preached about. Well, some of them preached about hell too. They used to say preachers preach hell hot and eternity long, and Jesus might come any minute. We lived with a constant, I started to say threat of his coming, but you know, I was always wondering, am I ready? And, and you know, when you're young... Every time I'd see a cloud that didn't look quite right, <laughs> I stood at attention. I thought, whoop, this may be the day. <laughs> I'd get home, and I, I'd go in the house, and I couldn't find mom, and I couldn't find dad, and I was just convinced <laughs> that I was the only one left, and they had been raptured, and it's pretty traumatizing, I have to tell you. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been in those kind of services, but when I was growing up, there weren't any seeker-sensitive churches, Pastor Al. <laughs> There were no seeker-sensitive evangelists. I mean, they were hardcore. They preached messages. You could almost smell the paint burning on the benches when they preached. I remember one title a guy preached, When God Was in the Mood to Kill. That'll uplift you, won't it? Turn or burn. That was another one I remember. I mean, that's a little different than seven steps to a happy life. I'm just telling you right now. Get saved and you can get a new Cadillac. They didn't believe that. <laughs> I was a church pianist in a little church and where I was raised, and we had a guy named Dale Rollins. And, oh, man, every night. I mean, I was the church pianist. And he'd say, there's people here tonight getting their last call. And he'd get real dramatic. And he said, I'm going to count to 10. And he always counted backwards. <laughs> and it'd take him a long time. 10, and he'd tell a story. 9, and he'd tell another story. And if you weren't convinced, when he got to 8, he would tell you about somebody that walked out when he was given an altar call and they had rejected his altar call and a bus hit him right out there in the parking. <laughs> you know, just, I never made it past 6. I was the church pianist. I went every night. I got saved every night just to be sure. I'm telling you. <laughs> now, 
it's politically incorrect to hurt anybody's feelings. Hurt feelings? Psychologists would really have a heyday in that day. I was in a William Branham meeting one night, and he said, I'm fixing to cast this devil out. And when he comes out, he's going to go in somebody. I got a tickle in my throat, man. <laughs> I couldn't sleep for days. <laughs> now, we mitigated all of that and ameliorated some of that activity that was so extreme. And I guess probably we've swung the pendulum a little too far because universalism has made quite a return. <laughs> And uh, preachers hardly say anything anymore that makes people feel uncomfortable. Be careful, don't egg me on, because I could take a rabbit trail on you real quick here. And so the church has stopped, well, not all the church, but a lot of people have stopped thinking about heaven, stopped preaching about heaven, stopped singing about heaven. But I tell you, that doesn't mean that the secular world has given up on the afterlife. You've been reading about transhumanism? Where they believe that scientists are going to be able to alter the body and the brains of people so much so that they can live much longer, maybe even forever? So, I mean, they, they're trying to finance this activity to where they can have some kind of way of reproducing the mental map in the brain and create this virtual reality where avatars can exist. It's not just something you saw in a movie. They're really working on this, and they're thinking that maybe some of the answers in outer space, and I'm telling you, they've got all this plan. They're putting all this money in all of this activity trying to do what we already know can happen if you just get saved. <laughs> You don't have to be wealthy and call Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk and take a fancy airplane ride on some concoction they've got going into outer space. Jesus is going to help you with a plane air ride. All you got to do is get saved. Just get saved. And get rapture ready. Oh, we used to sing about it. I'm going to take a trip in a good old gospel ship. I'm going far beyond the starry skies. Anybody remember that? I'm going to shout and sing and make the heavens ring as I'm waving this old world goodbye. Come on. Some of you are so young, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. That's a new song. <laughs> you wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> that's our blessed hope. I said, that's our blessed hope. The voice told John, come up. So you have to deduce that heaven is up. The Hebrew word for heaven is heights. The Greek word for heaven suggests that it's elevated, it's high, it's lifted up. When Jesus comes again, I just quoted to you a while ago, the apostle says he, he will descend from heaven with a shout. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. Then the living saints are going to be caught up. Lucifer when he attempted his insurrection against God in heaven, he said, I will ascend into the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and ascend above the heights of the clouds. So heaven is real. Heaven is high. And heaven is up. <laughs> Amazingly, John reported, immediately he said, I was in the spirit and saw the throne. What do you think he meant by that? That he went to heaven? Well, if you're a literalist, you would believe that. Some theologians, they don't believe that. They don't believe he took an actual trip. They just believe that was a state of mind. 
maybe a vision, maybe a dream. Somehow, they've not been able to equate it in their mind intellectually that he could have actually taken a trip. And I'm not a theologian, and I'm not here to argue with you if you are one. I'm just telling you the Scripture did not say, look here. Come look. Come think. But he says, come up. <laughs> Another translation said, come up here. I'll show you that what must happen next. Right then the Spirit took control of me, John said. And there in heaven, there in heaven, I saw a throne. So I don't know if you don't believe it actually happened. Somehow, some way, there was some kind of way he understood what was happening. And he seems to think that he went there immediately beyond the atmosphere, beyond the troposphere, beyond the stratosphere, beyond the mesosphere, beyond the ionosphere, out of our solar system, beyond our galaxy, past innumerable planets and stars into heaven. What a trip! <laughs> and he said he got there immediately. That's a long way. That's not insignificant. Most of us know that distance in our universe is measured by what they call the speed of light, the distance that light travels in a year. It's called light years. You know that. It's 186,000 miles a second. That's 11,160,000 miles a minute. Now, our sun is 93 million miles or eight light minutes away from us. That luminous ladder of stars we call the Milky Way, there's one of, it's one of billions of galaxies it's so large, it is 100,000 light years across it. It holds 100 billion more stars of its own. And the closest one to us is 200,000 light years away. Now, if you doubt that there's a creator somewhere, just start thinking about what's actually recorded by scientists. If you start traveling at the speed of light, you can leave Earth and you can reach Mercury 57 million miles away in four and a half minutes. That's faster than some of you women drive to the store. <laughs> Traveling at the speed of light, you get to Jupiter, which is 390 million miles away in 35 minutes. If you want to go to Saturn at 793 million miles, it'll take you 70 minutes. Traveling at the speed of light, Neptune is 2.27 billion miles beyond us. Pluto is at least a billion miles more, and heaven is further still. And John said, I was there immediately. So you say, well, I don't know if he took that trip. Well, I'm not going to argue with you if you think he didn't. But I can tell you one thing. When we take that trip, it will not be the figment of our imagination. <laughs> the scripture says, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, we shall be changed and we shall be in heaven. Hallelujah. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. You may have problems here. You may be suffering intolerable pain. You may have received a terminal diagnosis. You may have lost loved ones. You may have money problems or family problems or health problems. But just remember that when you have a problem that you can't solve, if you're going into a valley of depression and you're really struggling, can I just tell you there's a better day coming. <laughs> Paul says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound. And the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have taken on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written beyond death. Behold, death is 
swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't know how many people you said goodbye to this year, but I can tell you if they're saved and you're saved, you're going to see them again. Hallelujah. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, you may struggle down here. I'm not saying you're on it. I believe God can help you through a lot of stuff that you're going through. He can even deliver you from things. But if he doesn't, can I tell you, just keep looking on. He said, we are troubled on every hand, but we're not distressed. <laughs> Perplexed, we're not in despair. Persecuted, we're not forsaken. We've, we're cast down, but we're not destroyed. Why? He had his eye on the prize. He knew where he was headed. We used to sing, when we all get to heaven, what a of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus we'll sing and shout you sound good <laughs> if you want to see revival and you do I believe that Pastor Al and Chrissy I believe that this church is poised for the greatest move of God they've ever seen. I believe God has gifted you with the right leaders for the right time, for the right mission. Amen. I do believe that. And I believe that this message on heaven, Pastor, is not misplaced. Let me read you a quote from C.S. Lewis. If you read history, the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next world. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Wow. We got to know that heaven's not just a mere doctrine to be preached. It's not just a mere theory to be held. It's not a mere dogma to be believed, but it's the mighty motive that drives the church. The urgency that's developed because we believe Jesus is coming will motivate us to be more active in our witness, more active in our example, more active in our outreach. Our personal preferences should never, ever be bigger than our vision. Now, I don't believe anybody would stand and say, it's all about me. <laughs> but today... I was a district superintendent for a few years. I found out dealing with churches, I had to go mediate a few church fights. I found out that just because people talked in tongues did not make them automatically sweet. <laughs> I never mediated a church conflict. Think about this now. I never mediated a church conflict that began over doctrine. Now, I know that there are some that have had doctrine as the basis of their conflict. I personally never mediated one. Every one of them, every one of them began over preference. I want my way 
control. And some of them were so petty, so petty. And that leads me to tell you that it's not just about some easy escapism. We're not a bunch of people hovered in the corner waiting for some escape hatch called the rapture. Hope of heaven encourages holy living. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in him purifieth himself. Now think about it. If you start thinking about heaven, it'll make you want to get closer to Jesus. This may be one of the major antidotes for all the discipleship deficiencies that surveys are telling us are occurring in the evangelical church. They're telling us this. Pew tells us this. Barnett tells us this. They all tell us this. That 80% of the churches, evangelical churches in America are plateaued and declining. What could cause that? Loss of vision and inward focus. Loss of vision and inward focus. You get a glimpse of heaven. You start preaching about heaven. You start talking about purity. And God can help us get rapture ready. If you start thinking about heaven, it'll make you want to get more intimate, as your pastor said a moment ago, with Jesus. Trust him more. Praise him more. Love him more. Please him more. Obey him more. And the Bible says, John was saying, come up hither. Lift up your head. So, so join John in this journey and lift up your head. Come up hither. And then the Bible says, renew your strength. So if you've been weak, if you've been struggling, if you've had a problem you can't solve, why don't you start seeing God renew your strength? And one of the ways is start thinking about heaven. So when John is reporting all of this, you've got to understand the context. He was exiled on Patmos in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And this was 60 years past Pentecost. And the initial burst of growth that had occurred right after Pentecost now seemed to dwindle. And it looked like Christianity is a lost cause. The gospel was hardly at this point a world movement. The tyranny of Caesar, the overwhelming might of the Roman Empire, had overshadowed and persecuted the church. Jesus had promised them that the gates of hell would not prevail against them. But now it looks like that they're not winning. Maybe the gates of hell are prevailing against them. The church was being persecuted. Cancel culture is not new. <laughs> they were threatening to silence those who wanted to preach about Jesus. Preachers were being killed. Their progress was being stymied. They, they, they had seen their witness all but snuffed out. That's what John was seeing from the earth. But God was saying, come take another look. Come up. If you're having a bad day, if you're having a bad week, if you're having a bad month, if you've had a bad year, I just encourage you, if you want to renew your strength, start talking about heaven. John told some of us that, that if we would just start thinking about that, we could renew our strength. For greater is he that's within you than he that's within the world. you got to get closer to him than you've ever been. 
I don't have time to preach the whole book of Revelation or to tell you everything John saw, but I can tell you Revelation 19, verse 1, you just think about some of the things that you're going to experience when you get there. And the, after these things, I heard a great sound of many. This is chapter 19, verse 1, of many people in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. That's what we were doing a moment ago that Chrissy led us in. We are praising the Lord. Verse 6, then I heard something like the sound of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Verse 11, and there was a white horse. He sat on it, and the one who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hallelujah. He... is the King of Kings and Lord. John taught us a lot of what was there. Can I take a few minutes and tell you what's not there? Let me tell you what's going to be missing in heaven. There's going to be no more funeral homes. No more hospitals, no abortion clinics, no divorce courts, no brothels, no bankruptcy courts, no psychiatric wards, no treatment centers, no pornography, no teen suicide, no AIDS, no cancer, no missing children, no rights, no drug problems, no COVID, no drive-by shootings, no racial tension, no prejudice, no shaming, no lying, no stealing, no abuse, no violence, no poverty, no injustice, no depression, no gossip, no worry. Oh, somebody go ahead and praise the Lord. That's what we're headed for. Thank you, Jesus. No more physical pain. No more heartache. No murders. No racial division. No tears. No trauma. No tragedy. No suffering. No starvation. No arguments. No accidents. No emergency rooms. No heart attacks. No false teachers. No tornadoes. No hurricanes. No door locks. No sin. No immigration problems because everyone there is qualified for entry because they're saved and washed in the blood of the Lamb, hallelujah. Somebody ought to be praising God right now. That's where we're headed. Hallelujah. Somebody said, well, why do y'all have to get so loud? God's not deaf. I said, and he's not nervous either. Anticipating heaven helps you conquer the fear of death. Ernest Becker wrote a book called The Denial of Death, for which he won a Pulitzer Prize. He says, quote, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity. His premise was that everybody is terrified by their own death and they're trying to do everything they can to compensate for it. Stax Roche, an atheist, said the prospect of our death and the deaths of those we love is the major reason for depression. He wrote an article for the Huffington Post and it says, depression is a serious problem in the greater atheist community. And far too often, that 
depression has led to suicide. This is something that many of my fellow atheists often don't like to admit, but it is true. I've been reading a book recently that I haven't quite finished. It's called A Case for Heaven by Lee Strobel. I find that more and more people are becoming interested in the afterlife. There's a chapter that deals with what he calls near-death experiences. That's quite interesting. John Burke, who's a pastor from down south studied this subject for 15 years he wrote a book he said I don't like to call it near-death experiences most of the people that we are talking about and two were clinically dead but came back here's an article that Lee Strobel quotes from in his book have scientists proved that there's life after death near-death experiences reveals awareness now think about this. Awareness may continue even after the brain has shut down. Non-believers would tell you that when you, or at least the atheists would tell you, or the agnostics would probably say this, that after you die, the brain dies and there's nothing else. But this article says that there's awareness that they're finding after the brain supposedly has shut down. The article said 40% of the patients who survived a cardiac arrest were aware during the time they were clinically dead and before their hearts were restarted. These near-death experiences have something in common. Two out of three encountered a mystical or brilliant light. More than half say they meet other beings, either mystical ones or they actually say they see or meet their deceased relatives or friends. More than half describe unworldly, this is how they put it, or heavenly realms, and they find it very difficult to describe what they have experienced and witnessed. Now let me categorically say to you that we base our theology on the Bible, not on anything we read in a book or scientists have told us. We base our theology on the Bible. But it is interesting to know that now the scientific community is beginning to say stuff that we've known all along. <laughs> that when our brain shuts down, that doesn't mean we're dead. <laughs> in fact, the writer says, being absent from this body is to be with the Lord. Come on. <laughs> so when you read these situations and you hear these stories, number one, you don't know these people, so you don't have a trust factor with them. So you don't know if you can believe them or not because sometimes fraudulent things have occurred when people have made up stuff. I get that. Other people say, well, they didn't really have an experience like this. They had a, a hallucination or they had a dream or, they had, or this is their interpretation of some experience they had. I'm not here to argue with them, are you? I'm just here to report. You don't have to accept everything that's in that book or everything I'm about to say. But I will tell you, we know what the Bible says, that heaven is a real place. <laughs> and we believe now, there's a whole other thing about the thousand. I, I, I could spend a lot of time talking about eschatology. I just don't have time. I'm just talking about the initial moment that we leave planet Earth. 
going to happen. Now we're going to do some other stuff and come back. So praise God. (laughs) But I can tell you, I had an experience that's rocked my thought process. Actually, I didn't have it. I had a staff member for eight years. This couple served on our team. They left and they passed her church, but she fought ovarian cancer for 13 years. And they believed desperately every time there was a ray of hope that she was receiving her healing. And at the age of 54, she passed away and I spoke at her memorial, did the funeral, because they can still consider me their pastor. Charlie Tuttle has written a manuscript of an experience that he has reported that he had. You don't know him and you may not even believe what I'm about to read. I just read it to you because this is what he says he felt happened to him. Some may say, well, he had a dream or he had a vision or he had whatever. But I can tell you there's a part of this that helped me during these last few days when we lost two members of our family unexpectedly. And there's no answers humanly for some of this. Let let me share, and I'm going to quote. After Sherry went to heaven, that was her name, I found myself trying to connect the dots of reality with faith. A part of me felt that if all of God's promises were true, a broken, grief-filled heart shouldn't be my reality. And yet I knew that if faith in Jesus functions only as a safety net for our comfort and convenience, then faith borders on narcissism and selfishness. Still drowning in real-time grief, I needed answers to some very real questions I needed to hear from God. What I did not expect in the midst of struggling with losing Sherry was an after-death experience with her. Seventeen days after she passed into heaven, my wife and I shared a five-hour conversation in what I refer to as my God channel. Fearing I had lost my mind or was experiencing an emotional breakdown, I kept this conversation private at first. I only told my children and a few close friends, which I was included in that number. So I questioned him, asking him many of the questions that you would ask him if the conversation had been privileged in your hearing. So I said to him, you know, I always think about Saul and the witch of Endor. I mean, that's where I went first. You can't talk to the dead. Necromancy is forbidden. And I asked him all these questions. And he's retorted with some of these answers. He said, Billy Graham and other great men that we are aware of have made statements similar, but Billy Graham is known to say, when you hear I have died, don't believe it. I will be more alive after my transition to heaven than I am right now. Then he said, I didn't initiate the conversation, she did. And he said, in fact, the first five minutes I heard this in my God channel. However you think about that, I'm just going to tell you, (laughs) 
I'm not going to promise you anything. I'm just going to tell you. He thought it was the devil talking to him. He said, I spent five, ten minutes rebuking the devil before I... <laughs> but let me tell you what he came out with on the other side. And this is what I wanted to share. So he went on and he said that he asked her, what was dying like? Did you go to a bright light? Was there a tunnel? And I just read to you where people said they saw bright lights and saw a tunnel. What did you see? She said, death is a real enemy. It's not an experience. Jesus didn't die to defeat an experience. He died to defeat our enemy. And death is a real enemy. She said, I never went towards a light and a tunnel. I went towards death. And death knows you're coming. It knows everyone is coming. As you approach, it blasphemes and curses and yells at you. And death is violent, rude, and is loud. It's very dark. It's fearful. And then he said, I asked her, were you frightened? And she said, oh, no. Jesus was with me. So this is how Paul explained it in 2 Corinthians 5 eight, And I referred to it a moment ago already. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. She said, I wasn't scared. In fact, I was excited. Jesus was with me. He held my hand and I was strengthened and unafraid. The experience of his peace is indescribable. We began to walk towards death. And as we got closer, the screaming and the cursing got louder from death. But once death saw Jesus, death got quiet. And death didn't say a word to me. It just laid down. So you go through death, he said. No, she said, I walked over death. All things are under the feet of Jesus. When Jesus died and rose from the grave, death went under his feet. Death couldn't hold him. Death laid down for him. Death laid down for me. I never died. I departed my body. I walked over death. I defeated death because Jesus defeated death and I had him in my life. Death couldn't defeat me. When you accept Jesus, you don't experience death. Death cannot touch you. It never touched me. I stepped over death. I conquered death. I'm very much alive without the limitations of my physical body. I'm more alive now than when I was with you. That's why I received the crown of life when I entered heaven. I defeated death through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Hallelujah. Whenever, wherever, whenever you hear something like that, you're challenged. I know you're challenged, but whether you believe what he said or not, can I tell you what the Bible says? We have a tabernacle not made with hands. It's eternal. In the heavens, 2 Corinthians 5, 1. Come on. This old earthly tent, this tabernacle, when it withers and dies and falls away, we just step from one plane of reality into another plane of reality, and we wake up. We're in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Come on. Quit letting the devil terrify you. Quit letting him terrorize you. Quit letting him accuse you. Quit letting him come against you and make you want to do things you don't need to be doing. Come on. Lift up your head and look up. Your redemption is drawing nigh. So my question is, are you ready? Are you ready? I'm not here to manipulate you into a response. But I am here to tell you, the choice is yours. If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, the operative word is if. 
He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all, come on, unrighteousness. Paul said in Romans, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The key phrase there is whosoever calls. Jesus died on the cross, buried in a tomb, resurrected on the third day, seen by hundreds, went to the right hand of the Father, is coming back to get us. And he says, God so loved the world, John did, that he gave his only begotten son, that if you believe, you can not perish, but have everlasting life. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to forgiveness. So I'm not going to tell you a story. I'm not going to count to 10 backwards. <laughs> but I am going to tell you, I want you to go with us. I said, I want you to go with us to heaven. And if you're not sure, today is your day. <laughs> I've given you enough Bible. I've quoted more scriptures or read more, not just the opinions of Alton Garrison, but of him. And if you're here and you're not completely sure, I don't know if you've never accepted the Lord, you may be watching me online right now and you say, I don't know how to do that. Confess your sins, repent of your sins, ask Jesus to be your savior and welcome to the family of God. <laughs>